welcome back to the Natural History Covered podcast, uh, a place where the weird and wonderful parts of nature and science uh, reside. I'm your host, Gareth, uh, and with me, as ever, are my two co-hosts, Aaron, say hi. Dr. Owens, Dr. Thomas, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. And <laughs> Andrew, say hi. Uh, hello. I'm not going to go down Aaron's route. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a bit weird. I mean, well... <laughs> None of us are doctors. No. No, no definitely not. Welcome to uh, to episode two. I never thought we'd make it this far. Um, let's hope it keeps going. Uh, but um, so a big thank you to everyone who has actually ended up subscribing from all over the world. We've had uh, a few different countries and and at least 18, uh, no, sorry, at least 27 people within our first week. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. So a big thank you to uh, to all of those people. Um, yeah, thank so, you very much. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you'll stay with us. Here's hoping. <laughs> so for our, uh, for our episode this week, we've got um, of the news. We'll then be going into our creature feature, which Aaron has got uh, a strange dinosaur with us. We've then got the word of the week, um, where we're going to be bringing you a bizarre scientific term that you may have never heard of before. That's got a really interesting uh, explanation. And believe it or not, we've actually got some mail from some of the listeners. Um, so we're going to be answering some questions at the end of the show. Um, so we will start off with <clears throat> are you okay there Aaron? <laughs> yeah that's okay just making sure <laughs> tickle in the throat nice and professional everybody <laughs> anyway we will start off with the news welcome to the news so today we've got uh drew giving us his article about um well rewilding of britain so we'll start off with, with you, Drew, before I go into uh, to my article, which is also a little bit along the same theme, but for a slightly different reason. So do you want to explain to us rewilding with bison? Uh, absolutely. So, yeah, the article that uh, I've been looking into this week uh, is one on The Independent, and it's called uh, We Must Get Behind Radical Rewilding Initiatives, Such as Reintroducing Bison to Britain. Um, so to start off with the bare basics, I think. What is a bison? Well, it's a, it's it's, a big uh, old cow. It's, isn't it? it's a big old cow. Well, I, I thought the difference between a bison and uh, a basin is you can wash your hands in one and not the other. Didn't. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, didn't want to, I didn't want to entertain that with anything <laughs> at all, so I just, I'll stay silent. <laughs> I can only apologise to everyone. Oh, Jesus. Well, anyway... Bison. So yeah, it's the, the heaviest terrestrial, uh, terrestrial animal in Europe. Um, they are similar to the American bison, which is sometimes incorrectly called a buffalo. Uh, but European bison are taller, they've got slightly longer legs, um, and they browse more than American <clears throat> bisons do, uh, which graze more. So they're more sort of focused in forested areas, uh, whereas American bison live out in the, uh, the big old plains. Uh, so historically, uh, bison have been, uh, were native to most of Europe. Um, and it may have inhabited some of Northern Asia as well. Uh, so their range decreased as human populations expanded and cut down forests. Um, by the 20th century, they were declared extinct in the wild. Um, but through captive breeding programs, they have been reintroduced in the wild uh, across uh, quite a lot of Europe. Um, and they're now numbering several thousand, um, but they're still ab absent from most of their historic range. Um, now the European bison wasn't, Possibly, we're not 100% sure, but it probably wasn't native to the UK. 
collected, but fossil records um, of the steppe bison have been discovered here. Uh, and the European very, very closely related. It's also, it may, it's theoretically a hybrid also of the steppe bison um, and the oryx. Mm. Um, and it basically occupies the same niche. Um, <clears throat> so the steppe bison is extinct now due to the European bison quite possibly replacing it, um, although there was a degree of crossover between the two. So the Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood, uh, the Wildwood Trust uh, in Kent as well uh, will be heralding the introduction of the European bison to the UK. Uh, in West Bleen in Kent, um, in a 200 hectare enclosure to start with. Uh, and why do they want to do this? Well, because bison are ecosystem engineers, uh, a bit like beavers, and I'm sure we'll cover those at some point <coughs> in another episode. I, say, I think the Wildwood Trust have also done uh, rewilding with beavers as well down in Kent. Yes. I didn't know that. Too. Yeah. Because there's some yeah. in the River Otter in South Devon, isn't there? But they were... There are, and they're they up were in Scotland done... now. Mm. unofficially <laughs> <laughs> yes but oh, it, it's all been sort of made official since then though um uh, but yeah but the the bison like i said are like uh, are like beavers in the sense that they're ecosystem engineers so they basically mm. create an ecosystem uh, by being by, by just their presence within it and uh, and their habits within it so they're obviously very very muscular um and they and i quote from the article they thrash about with gay abandon uh, <laughs> so they turn up the, they turn up the turf and they diversify the forest floor um but they so, do it. <laughs> sorry, second. They're doing it in a happy way, though. They're doing it in a really happy. Yeah, they're thrilled. <laughs> they're thrilled about their uh, their thrashing. Um, and how does this help? So what it does is it promotes a complex root system, uh, in which turn, uh, which in turn promotes um, mycorrhizal fungi, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. Yeah. I did have to. I did have to um, do one of those little pronunciation things on on YouTube. No, that, that's uh, definitely how you pronounce that. That's, that's yeah. really important. Um, for the health of a forest floor, that and even yeah, the garden at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's really yeah. So a, a good fungi uh, ratio uh, in the forest floor or in any sort of soil or compost um, is really really help. Uh, yeah, basically means that uh, all the plants will be nice and healthy. Um, but that fungi also acts like a messaging system for the trees as well. Uh, so they can literally talk to one another. If one's under attack by squirrels or worms or who knows, dwarfs. Uh, or, <laughs> then they can tell the other trees, "I'm under attack. Uh, please, you know, you know, sort yourself out. Get ready. Be prepared. Maybe move. <laughs> Run away. Whatever it is. Whatever it's it is you want to do. To electric signal that trees send out, isn't it? Yeah, they do it when there's forest fires as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, an electronic uh, that... scream is what I heard it disturbingly described as once. The worst thing is the other trees oh, nice. stand there and watch. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, they are. I think they're quite sadistic trees. They I do, I do as box, well. Don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, uh, mycorrhizal fungi is a carbon guzzler as well. Um, and studies have shown that a good ratio of fungi in uh, in the compost and in the soil can sequester up to twenty tons of carbon per hectare per year. Okay. So not only do they promote a healthy forest uh, through turning it over, uh, the bison that is, and um, the shedding also from their coats. Uh, also nourishes the soil as well. Um, so it's a fantastic natural solution to our nature depleted country. Uh, the UK is one of the most, is probably the most nature depleted country in Europe. Um, we certainly have less forest uh, in the UK than any other country in Europe. Mm. Uh, but you may or may not know uh, that we have more ancient forest than any other country in Europe. In fact, actually we have more ancient forest than all other countries in Europe combined. It's um, just in 
just in one area, like just lumped all in one garden there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we really need to protect it, and uh, these yeah, bison sure. will, will certainly help if uh, if they did become widespread and they were allowed uh, pretty much to help manage it. Um, but yeah, human management alone isn't often enough to create the kinds of habitats that species need. Absolutely not. So that's uh, that's uh, the bison article. Yeah, oh, well, we can uh, we can certainly hope that uh, that goes ahead. I get the feeling there might be a few people who'd be a a little bit sort of against the idea, but when it comes to rewilding stuff, there almost certainly always is people against it. Yeah. I mean, Did you I, come I across any out, of that, um, Drew? Uh, yeah, I can read out uh, a certain comment to you, if you like, uh, which is on this article on The Independent. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was, uh, the, the comment said, won't the climate change bunch be against this? Reintroducing large ruminants is going to lead to more methane in the atmosphere. <laughs> so I will just point out that they only want to... To start with, they only want to introduce. I think it's four bison to begin with. So that's one male, one male, three, uh, one male, three females. So I don't think that's going to have a significant no. impact. I mean, that's that's a very large number of bison there compared to all the cattle. That's yeah. that we that's have, also yeah. someone who's trying to, you know, p- pull threads and and just to cause an argument. I think because because of the whole at the moment we've got this uh, kind of. There's a view that um, I'm trying to be politically correct. There's a view that the way we manage our cattle farming is detrimental to the environment via sure. climate uh, climate change. Mm. Yes. Well. Uh, yeah. Well, let's hope we end up seeing bison in the wild and hopefully well, all all over the country. We, I certainly wouldn't mind seeing them. I would we, like. We to definitely see will. This. We definitely will because yeah, this is. This- happening uh, as far as i'm aware yeah um or at least as far as um uh, the organizations uh, organizations taking involved uh, getting involved are aware so the kind of wildlife trust and the wildlife uh, wildlife trust um so the bison should arrive um or should be put basically in the wild and i do the <laughs> wild with air quotes because they're in a mm-hmm. large enclosure. Yeah. um it should be in 2022 um so it should, uh, be next, should be next year i've just a couple questions so i know the the groups involved, but do you know where the individuals are coming from? Where they're being sourced from? No, <laughs> no that's right. That. That's right. I could look at. I could look it up. Um, the only reason I ask is a good thing to jump in on, since the three of us have, at varying stages, been related to zoos. Um, yeah. The Wyson. Uh, that's that was another question. This is the oh, Wyson, yeah. Yes, yeah, I did so mean to. Yeah, I, did, I did mean to say so, that. So yeah, it's the white. It's also called a wizen, um, but yeah, it's the same same thing, just another so name. This species has actually been struggling in Europe for a long time. I can't remember the exact numbers. I think they went down to like four hundred or something at one point. Now they're up in the I think, thousands. I think, they, um, I think they went extinct completely from the wild. Oh really? Almost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and now they're in several thousand. Uh, but they're These mainly guys... sort of located in uh, Poland. I think most of them yep. are in Poland, but a few other countries have some scattered about. Well, they were one of the first wild species for which um, captive breeding used the kind of the racehorse model for, you know, for breeding thoroughbreds and uh, uh, pure, purebreds for, for the horse racing and stuff and having a, a stud book and all that. Mm-hmm. These guys were one of the first wild species to have that. They're certainly um, one of those very first big 
success stories when it comes yeah. to a large mammal like yeah. that. Them yeah. and, and the aura, uh, the the uh, scimitar horn oryx is another yes. big, big success story. It leads me on to my my last question about this article, Drew, and then I'll stop bugging you. I promise. <laughs> yep. But uh, a few zoos actually. Especially in in UK, I believe Highland Wildlife Park may have been involved, but my memory is kind of on it. Um, but there was a few released into Spain um, okay. a couple of years ago, and I believe a lot of them got poached very shortly right. after being released. So I understand that they're going into an enclosure. Um, I'm hoping I'm right in assuming that the enclosure is much like most um, breed release programs. The enclosure is temporary, and then once they're settled and, and like the appropriate kind of research and preparations have been carried out, they might then be allowed out. It, it, not into the wild, wild, because there isn't one in Britain, but like <laughs> out yeah. of the enclosure. If that were to happen, and even in the enclosure, actually, considering what happens to that rhino in France... Um, how they are there is there anyone protecting them uh so they're being released into uh wilder bling uh, which is in which is in kent so yeah i think the plan is basically to uh, to see how they go within that mm. within those 200 acres um and then maybe look at either letting those ones out further or possibly doing the same but in, in, diff- in different parts of the country i'm not I'm sure i'm not 100 there is i'm trying to find the article for it now uh, but there was another article that you can find um, that's either on the Count Wildlife Trust um, or in the Wildwood Trust about this specific um, project. Oh, yeah. Uh, They're looking for two people to actually be rangers to look after them. So I would yeah, imagine that's... it's going to be yeah. a case mm. they're going to spend a good chunk of their day looking at bison. Yes, basically, yeah. What a wonderful yeah. animal to look at. Exactly. Those, uh, those jobs are going right now as well. So uh, yeah, if that appeals to you, get on it. those up. <laughs> if you live, if you live near Kent, I mean, or even if you want to travel to Kent, um, <laughs> yeah, they're looking for two rangers to try and help, uh, try and help preserve these guys and um, and study them and protect them. Cool. Yeah. Right. Well, that takes us from one rewilding project that's happening because of man um, to another rewilding project that's happening purely because the animal wants to um <laughs> and that is the bearded vulture or the lamagar vulture um a bird that i absolutely love and i've been very lucky to actually see in the wild um it's uh, another one that has turned up in the uk they've they've uh, well from the um from the news article that i've got here from the eastern daily press the very short news article that i've got from it uh, a bearded vulture has been spotted in Norfolk, flying over someone's chicken coop, as the uh, the Twitter comment says uh, on the uh, on the news article. Um, why is that of interest? I mean, the UK doesn't really have any vulture species, but every now and again, Lamagaya vultures have been spotted uh, turning up in the UK. Um, they seem to do it for no particular reason other than they just are looking for somewhere to go and have a bit of a, a jolly. Usually they're um, they're quite young birds. They're, they're last year's bird. Um, mm-hmm. And this one will just be a year old. Uh, and the thought is no one really knows exactly why they come to the UK or Northern Europe because they're mainly found uh, in Southern Europe around the Alps, um, high up in the mountains uh, and out onto sort of the plains in Spain where I believe it rains. Um <laughs> And uh, they spend their, their days looking for carcasses being vultures. Stop 
stop encouraging him. <laughs> I'm going to put as many dad jokes in there as possible. Um, yeah, so sorry. this one has turned up uh, over Norfolk, over someone's chicken coop. Um, although it's not going to be taking chickens, not unless they're leaving a pen full of dead chickens. Yeah, uh, so the... they are they are very much scavengers. These birds. Yeah, so that that comment within that article annoyed me. Sorry to sort of derail you there. No, uh, no, it, the... it, it's all that thought. When someone that... said, "Oh my God, there's a lammergeier or a bearded vulture hovering over my chickens in the back garden." So it's <laughs> it's quite high up in the air, up in the up in the air, up in the yeah. sky. Uh, it could be looking at anything. Why have, yeah. you, why have you assumed it's your chickens? There's, there's a lot for it to look up to. I, I don't know if, if anyone's ever, you know, hovered for a long time. You can see quite a lot. I haven't done that too much, hovering. No. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're not after your chickens. No, no. Uh, if anything, um, they have been, have been spotted in the UK a couple of times. Um, so there was one last year, and there was one in 2019, and one in 2016. Uh, are the uh, the records going back to Lama guys turning up in the UK? The one in 2016 actually made it as far over from uh, Europe, right the way over to uh, to Devon, which is quite a decent trek. Uh, and so essentially, they they think these birds just go for a bit of a, a gap year, effectively, when they're uh, they they've left the nest. They're looking for somewhere to go. They always seem to go north, according to the research that I've looked into. They seem to fly around, look for somewhere. Find a uh, find somewhere to have a bit of uh, food. Spend a couple of weeks, or sometimes even months, in that area, and then disappear <clears> back down to southern Europe. I was going to say it's, it's probably because there's lots of rabbits here that die, and no predators to eat them. So yeah, yeah. just pick but, up a rabbit, a dead rabbit, whenever they want. The thought is, this is a bird that has almost zero impact on our native species, apart from cleaning oh. up is, which would be really, really good. Um, so if we did end up with uh, bearded vultures ever actually breeding in the UK and, and living here, uh, it wouldn't actually create too much of an impact. The only b other birds that in the UK that are basically our version of a vulture are things like red kites, mm -hmm. uh, which thankfully their numbers are uh, on the increase. And <laughs> if you've ever been uh, to um, Gigrin Farm uh, in Wales, where they feed them, or some of the other places where they are incredibly common, um, they uh, they are well basically scavengers. They don't hunt things as such. They tend to just pick up carcasses and and feed off them, pretty much like lammergeier mm. vultures do. Yeah, um, but they are an amazing bird to see in the wild. I spent some time in in the Pyrenees looking for them, uh, and well, they were doing exactly what you were saying, Drew. They were hovering. Yeah. Although I wasn't near any chicken coops at the time. No. So uh, <laughs> no, just, they are just, certainly just not interested. Yeah. Not really, no. Yeah. But they are amazing in that they, they eat bones as well. And they will eat solid pieces of bone uh, and their stomach acid can actually digest the, uh, the, the goodness out of it um, and be able to get through it. So they are pretty tough birds with a really, really bizarre feeding strategy. But hmm. if there's a gap, they'll basically, you know, yeah. uh, fill in that gap. Yeah. But unfortunately, the UK, like you were saying with... Um, with our destruction of our habitats, we're also one of the uh, the top countries for persecuting raptors um, in all of Europe. Oh, we, so, we love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things that, unfortunately, people in Britain are very, very good at poisoning birds of prey. And I say raptors yeah. as in birds of prey, not as in dinosaurs. Um, but uh, yeah, there are many cases every year where birds of prey are poisoned, usually by farmers, because they think they are going to do things like 
take chickens or even as bizarre as taking sheep. These are animals that just don't do that. So here's hoping that that vulture stays around, has a good time, disappears back to wherever it's, uh, what part of um, Southern Europe it's come from, uh, and we see more in the future. So absolutely, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So the um, but if you're in, the... if you're in Norfolk, try and get out. Well, I'd say try and get out and see this thing. <laughs> However, no, don't. don't get out don't. and see this thing because of current COVID restrictions yes. in the UK. So uh, <laughs> and if it's flying over your chicken coop at home, have a good look and take uh, take some photos. Send them in to us. Yes, and even, but even if lockdown is, is over, even when we finish lockdown, just stop travelling. Stop going. Just stop, please. Just stop. Just stop. <laughs> keep yourself safe and keep those safe around you. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Regardless of COVID restrictions, let's let's move on. Okay, and we're back for our second creature feature ever. And this week, it's a bizarre little dinosaur uh, that Aaron is going to tell us about. Uh, so take it away. Okay, so this week... Um in choosing the creature feature i wanted to go for what i keep saying is my favorite dinosaur but i can't decide what my favorite dinosaur is uh but its name is ambopteryx longibrachium uh which means the ambopteryx part means both wings and the longibrachium part means long upper arms um now this is a really cool looking little dinosaur uh we describe it or rather i describe it as a furry or feathery little wyvern-sized, well, sparrow-sized wyvern, uh, wyvern being <laughs> a, uh, a, dra- a type of dragon, for those of you that don't know. But essentially, what it looks like is it has a blunt head, um, so it doesn't have a long snout. Uh, like, don't think of um, kind of your raptor-type animals. It's a little bit of a shorter uh, snout. Um, as I said, or as I suggested, it's covered in feathers, <laughs> but they're very fine uh, fur-like feathers. Um, proto-feathers. Proto-feathers, yeah, thank you. It's got an elongated third finger, which originally they believed... It, it's a, That's actually quite characteristic of, of the group that this animal belongs to, which I'll try and pronounce for you in a minute. But they originally I, believed... I can do that one for you if you wish, Aaron. I do actually... That one I do know. I couldn't pronounce its name beforehand, but I can pronounce the group that it belongs to. I, but anyway, I, I have a question <laughs> about it in a minute, which you might be able to answer. Um, so the third finger was originally believed to be used similar to that of eye eyes, so for gripping and for also kind of fishing into like get bugs out of things. However, it's since been understood as an anchor point for the wind membranes to attach to, and that's kind of the most important thing about these guys is their wings, how unique they are. But before we get onto that, uh, just a quick description. Uh, their tail is a bit different as well. So they have a short pigger style tail, which means it's ended in a fused set of vertebrae. And this is what anchors the tail feathers uh, in living avian dinosaurs, otherwise known as birds. Uh, so you can kind of imagine that it's a short tail and it's probably got, probably got I've, some sort of array or display of of tail feathers similar to a bird i'm thinking it's um, from the illustrations i've seen it's it seems to be popular to depict them with having a tail somewhat reminiscent of a red kite or a bird of paradise where the feathers on the outside 
are kind of longer than the ones on the on the inner part of the tail. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, sort of strap like, yeah, really, aren't they? Yeah. Just to circle back to it is the wings because the wings are unique, or well, not unique, but they're unique to this family because we've kind of always understood dinosaurs uh, to kind of transition through evolution into avian dinosaurs, the birds, uh, kind of by some sort of gradual development of the wings that we would be, uh, that we would recognize today. Not these type of wings, which we know pterosaurs had something similar. Uh, but now, because of this discovery, uh, like I say, this three, four now, but this discovery kind of blew the whole conversation open. We now there may have been four attempts by the dinosaurs to evolve flight. And this one is by far the coolest, in my opinion, because these guys evolved a bat-like membrane that was connected to their, their digits and to the, the flanks of their, of their body. So you, what you're imagining essentially is a small bird-sized drogon or smaug essentially um not breathing fire, i was about to say you wouldn't get burnt by it but uh but yeah awesome thing to imagine and if you do get the chance google ambopteryx longibrachium have a look at it the um the paleo art for this animal is just incredible i love it um so yeah that's essentially what they look like they were recovered in 2017 from the like i said i'm i'm probably going to butcher names in this one so they were recovered in 2017 from the equivalent kind of geo area of uh here we go high fangal formation near <laughs> chinese pronunciation oh, oh, yeah so china yeah we can only yes. apologize to any chinese listeners sorry <laughs> yeah i'm really sorry because <laughs> this is not i'm not going to be doing your language any any uh credit here so this formation is found near wubading village in the liaoning province um liaoning liaoning is it oh thank you thank you well that's uh that's where they're found um and this particular fossil is so important because it wasn't just a piece or several pieces which is what they found of of close relatives like yiki and and of this animal as well i believe Instead, this time they found an articulated, nearly complete skeleton with the soft tissue displayed quite clearly on both the slab and the counter slab. So that's the two sides of the fossil when you break them open. That's right, isn't it, Gareth? Yeah, yeah. One's basically the negative. Negative, thank one's you. Yeah. The, the, the positive. So uh, you get sort of a reversed image sometimes of, of the same so the thing. So fossil, this fossil is important uh, for three possibly four reasons here. Um, not only is it an articulated, nearly complete skeleton showing you what this animal would have looked like, its basic form. That's, that's important enough because, like I say, only fragments have been found. But also soft tissue that I mentioned, that included these feathers that I spoke about and, most importantly, the bat uh, wing. Uh, a brown wing membrane was found in this. And... They've never been certain these animals have eaten. There's always been like some speculation, but now they can say with somewhat uh, certainty 
that these guys were omnivores. Because not only does the fossil show ev- evidence of gastroliths, which are basically uh, stones, I would say is the best way of describing them, stones that help to grind up plant matter, but also they found large fragments of bone suggesting that they hunted too. Um, previous to this, the diets of this group were unknown. I am going to try and pronounce the group name so you, you guys at home can look them up. Prepare for it to be butchered. Scansoriop. Uh- Scansoriopterigid is is very much and correct. Eric. You've answered the question well, I had about this name because I I was thinking because the P and the T are so close together. Uh, I was wondering the same thing that we were wondering about Ambopteryx, whether the P would be uh, pronounced or not. I think it's the same as with uh, anything that's got optery in because their name means climbing wing. <laughs> hmm. Uh, anything that's got opt or opterix uh, is is wings. So Thank I you. think it's as to whether you pronounce it, but so these, I'm I'm no paleontologist. These guys <laughs> lived about well, they lived about 160 million years ago, uh, which actually further uh, interests me because this fossil predates the fossils that show. Um, dinosaurs developing feathered wings so this method of flying was actually attempted evolutionary speaking before the uh the birds so you could potentially look at them as a failed experiment i think that's a good way of looking um, at it like all the yeah. people who tried different types of planes they, they before... may not be happy with that but i mean no, they won't be happy with it it's not a very nice way to talk about one of my favorite dinosaurs if, is it? Yeah. if any of the if they, any of the dinosaurs want to come and take it up with me i'm more than happy oh for sure if they want to explain their sort of side of things then <laughs> yes. please email in always up for talking it out with speaking of uh of if they wanted to contact us i do have a direct quote from ambopteryx longy brackham uh and it, oh? he okay. says my armor is like tenfold shields my teeth are swords my claws are spears the sh- thunderbolt <laughs> my wings are hurricane and my breath is death Think you might have got that yeah, confused. I think, I think, isn't, that, um, isn't that from the Hobbit? It is. It's Smaug. <laughs> Smaug the Magnificent, chiefest calamity of our time. Yeah. Um, how big were these dinosaurs? Sorry. So, how big they were? I, I do you know what? I actually couldn't find a exact uh, thing. I've been referring to them as sparrow-sized wyverns because they've let, literally the, the information literally says that they are small bird size then when i think of a small bird i think of sparrow robin that kind of size but they're a, they're a tiny, they're tiny bit, bigger. bit bigger from yeah, yeah. i'm looking yeah. at size comparison here I, I would say sort of maybe magpie yeah, yeah that's magpie a small bird isn't it i suppose the ones i'm yeah. thinking of are tiny birds um the ones that you the ones um they do actually go down a little bit smaller in uh, in that Epidepsipteryx, which is the only one of the group that I can actually pronounce their name completely off, is a little bit smaller, but not by much. That's the one I've not heard of, because I know of Yichi, um, and obviously I know of Ambopteryx. I find Ambopteryx... I'm going to look into the one that you uh, mentioned. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. But I find Ambopteryx is the more interesting looking out of the two that I know. Um, Here's an interesting thing as well. I wrongly assumed um from when i first found out about this animal till i did a little bit more research into it for this podcast 
I wrongly assumed that these guys were gliders and that they were too clumsy to fly. But apparently this debate has not settled at all and researchers are still working out and doing the math of whether these mini dragons could fly. Um, but they do know for sure that they could at least glide from tree to tree uh, like a sugar glider. But they, mm-hmm. they have a feeling that these guys actually could fly. Mm. They're now searching for more evidence of the membranes in uh, in fossilized specimens, and they're using like um, cutting edge laser technology to reveal the soft tissue in the rock. Um, they spared no expense. <laughs> oh, there you got it in. I got it in. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, you've got the Jurassic Park reference in there. So yeah, it's a really important fossil because, like I say, the the fur and feathers, the the wind membrane, and the fact that we now know what they ate yeah so do, do, oh, that's really... uh, do these guys predate um because it's it's late jurassic isn't it so yeah. does it predate as you're saying it predates a lot of feathered um sort of uh non-avian dinosaurs? not necessarily or, i don't think it mean... predates like feathers i think it predates the um like, the transition of arms into more wing-like structures okay so does it predate Ar- archaeopteryx do you know Gareth, you're probably the better uh, one for that. This guy lived around <laughs> 160 million years ago. Uh, if I remember correctly, and I'd, I would say that these guys are pre-Archaeopteryx uh, by about 20 million years, but um, that's only just because Archaeopteryx... Just makes each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, that and one lived in Germany and one lived in China. Well, but, um, yeah. And at that point, they still were fairly distant places apart from that's each a, other. A dogfight um, we'll never see. <laughs> Unfortunately, Sadly. no. It would be a very I, small I mean, dogfight. Dog by the way, not actual dogfighting. Just to <laughs> keep this, <laughs> just to be absolutely clear. Um, but Archaeopteryx, I've just double checked. That's another fantastic I, animal. I, I double checked it as well, and you were pretty much spot on. I think hundred fifty million years. So yeah, they they were slightly different from each other time period wise, yeah. um, but. There were certainly dinosaurs that looked very similar to Archaeopteryx living in the same parts of China uh, a little bit later on. So you've got things like Microraptor and Sinosauropteryx and some of those various other um, species that would have, well, probably outcompeted these guys in uh, in things. So uh, it's one of those evolutionary mm. experiments where you end up with with animals evolving to do different things and in the, different ways. I think the importance mm. of this fossil is, it, like, obviously we draw a line of comparison to Archaeopteryx because it's the it's the one you think of when it comes to dinosaurs and birds but I think it can't be understated how important both the Archaeopteryx the typical Archaeopteryx fossil that we think of when we imagine it and this fossil, how important these two fossils have been to just kind of exploding the discussion about about flight and birds and the place of both in the in the the realm of the dinosaurs. They are yeah, stunning uh, and, and they are priceless <clears throat> fossils as well um, in, in just basically how they look. To me, most of those fossils are more beautiful than the Mona Lisa. Okay. Wow. But then again, I'm a, dino- oh, I'm a dinosaur. There we go. Man, so. that, is a, that is a statement <laughs> to end on, I think. <laughs> so we'll go, from, we'll go from flying dinosaur bats um, into our our next uh, topic, which instead of um, us doing 
our pop culture corner this week, we have got a word of the week. So we'll go into our word of the week segment. And welcome along to our first word of the week. This week's word of the week is thigmotaxis or thigmotactic. Uh, essentially, the definition for that is uh, an organism's response to the stimulus of contact or touch. Uh, this response can either be positive or it can be negative. Uh, and essentially, it's the way that animals have responded to those touches that has actually driven them down different evolutionary lines. One of the best examples of an animal that is thigmotactically positive and likes to be touched, likes to cram itself into one of the smallest spaces it can possibly find, uh, is things like cockroaches. Now, most people don't like cockroaches. Um, I absolutely love them. But if you went looking for cockroaches in the wild, uh, you would usually find them crammed underneath a bark uh, piece on the side of a tree or underneath a log in a large group, all crammed together. They actually feel <coughs> nice and safe, nice and uh, calm when they're in physical contact with each other or actually pressed up against something tight underneath a log. And the same was uh, would be true if you had cockroaches in your house. They would uh, find a dark space to hide underneath. And essentially, that stimulus of, of being up close to everyone uh, allows them to stay safe and allows them to not get eaten. Now, one of the other sort of ways that thigmatax, uh, thigmatactic uh, stimulus can also work is for plants as well. And there's a fantastic plant uh, called a touch-me-not. Uh, if you've ever seen one of these, have you guys ever seen a touch-me-not plant? I've not. No. Uh, no, I've not. So essentially what they do is sort of the reverse of a, um, uh, a Venus flytrap, which will close... Uh, to grab a hold of something when there's there's food around, so that's another thigma tactic response. It's basically clamping down because it feels that uh, that outside influence of a fly or something landing on it, and that means it gets its food. But the touch me not uh, likes to make sure that it doesn't get eaten by insects. No plant wants to get eaten by insects, but it's in that rare group of uh, of plants that's actually figured out a way of getting any insect that lands on it to fall off. The first thing it'll do if it gets just a slight touch is the leaves will curl in a little bit. Now, if that touch then continues and it's not, say, just a drop of rain that's just run off, it will then uh, drop its stem down a little bit further. It essentially folds itself down to such a point that any insect that's landed on there will fall off because it's lost any sort of place to, to hang on to. If you keep on doing it too much, just like with a, um, a Venus flytrap, it can kill the plant. Um, but they are one of those absolutely bizarre little plants that make sure uh, that they don't well get predated on by using this really, really fantastic method uh, of making sure that anything that falls on uh, lands on them falls off. So it will, it will introvert itself to death? If you keep touching it. <laughs> if, you, if you were to go out to, uh, to where these plants live in South Africa and, and start touching these plants just a bit too much... They will right. eventually die because it sort of pulls too much energy out of the plant to do it. It is a response to making sure that it doesn't get eaten by things like locusts, which will fall off and the plant curls in on itself. But it's not designed yeah. to uh, to sort of get rid of humans, unfortunately. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I know. I was, uh, I was uh, simplifying that a little bit much, but <laughs> so yes, basically. Yeah. Well, I didn't think you were going to go down the route of uh, this plant being touched to death. I, I was imagining this plant packing his bags and saying, "Right, I'm off, lads. <laughs> <They haven't... laughs> packing my bags and going to another field, mate." They haven't quite worked out how to move yet. <laughs> it's the very basics of movement for a plant, which is still pretty, uh, pretty amazing compared to yeah, 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 absolutely. Plants just sit there and do nothing. But it's um it's that response to uh, to stimulus outside touch from something else that makes them do things. Uh, all animals, to an extent, are thigmotactically positive uh, and have thigmotactically negative uh, bits to them. So essentially, we uh, we don't want to touch things that are going to hurt us, um, but we do want to touch things that are positive. So it's it's just the uh, the way of getting that across. We like a hug, but we don't want to be poked in the eye. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was other, wondering where you're going with that. <laughs> some other really good examples uh, are things like earwigs. They actually have really amazing parental care, uh, and the babies actually develop a lot better and and uh, are a lot safer when they're kept with their mother. So if you ever lift up a stone, and the same can, uh, you can find here in the UK uh, or a log, and you see an earwig, uh, a lot of the babies will be basically very close to uh, to each other, and unlike what their name suggests they don't live in people's ears so that's uh, that's a touch response that they're not going to want is to climb inside of a human ear not unless can we 100 very... confirm that can we have like a little i mean sound if, clip 100 percent confirmed does not crawl into ears if, if you want to go and bury yourself in the leaf litter in the forest <clears throat> there's a chance you may end up with one in there but oh. you know, i think that's that, that probably says more about you and in, in your habits in the forest than it does about you. <laughs> well, it would do if I did do that, yes. Well, You're that assuming is... that I do. <laughs> is, is that common for, for in, in the insect world for for them to be figmatactic or take it one step further to have a strong parental instinct like uh, earwigs? Some, uh, some species of insect are really, really heavily parental because it's a really good response to make sure that your animal, uh, that your, the the next generation stays safe. Some don't really care as much. Um, huh. Some species will carry around uh, the the eggs or the egg sac. Uh, wolf spiders are a, another good example. Not an insect, but an, uh, an invertebrate. Um, they'll carry that egg sac around. They'll keep it nice and clean, uh, and they'll keep it around until the babies hatch out. And to an even uh, greater extent some animals will make sure that their eggs are so protected that they end up dying at the end of it think uh, octopuses for instance will basically mm. yes i was thinking about that as well to make sure that their eggs are oxygenated and protected from outside mm. sources so the moment they hatch the mother just carks it there and then so uh, they don't tend to live past about a year or two which is really kind of sad uh, yeah it is <laughs> yeah it's a heartbreaking part of Blue Planet, I believe, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, most of Blue Planet, there's heartbreaking moments in it. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it, I suppose. But yes, there is in a, in itself our first word of the week: thigmotactic or thigmotaxis. Um, so we'll move on from that uh, from our uh, word of the week, and we're going to dive for the first time ever into our mailbag because, believe it or not, we've actually got some mail this time. Um, so let's go to our mailbag. Okay, we're now going to dive into our mailbag because, believe it or not, we actually have 
some questions in the mailbag this week. We have three specifically. Not a giant amount, I know, but still, it's three good questions. Is three deep uh, enough to dive into, or do you just step in cautiously? You can, you can try. You, well, <laughs> I mean, you can you can try diving in. You might end up hurting yourself, but um, I mean, I, I sort of picture uh, eventually a sort of Scrooge McGuck. Scrooge <laughs> Scrooge McDuck style situation where we've got a gigantic vault of letters. Wonderful. You know, where people can dive into to pick the letter. But for the moment, you know, we'll start off with three just slightly covering the floor. <laughs> it was a better joke than that. It sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we'll move on um, to... Uh, Drew, do you want to uh, to kick things off with uh, your question that you've been sent in this week? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, uh, of, of all the millions of questions that we we got this week, uh, <laughs> we've, we've selected just a couple of out. Um, I've had to shift through so many emails. Some of them are questions. Some of them, Gareth has logged on to different things, uh, but we won't go down that. Um, so, no, we've, we've got a couple of questions here from uh, all from the same person, uh, and we're going to cover uh, two of them. Um, so these questions are from Jess, uh, who is my partner. That might be a reason why we got these questions. Um, it, was nice to... he, it was nice that she emailed in and, and humoured her. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so she to listen. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so she's titled this Questions for Lonely Boys. Uh, and she said, uh, here are some questions to stop you being lonely, boys, when you next check your very uh, sexist mailbox. In, in future, please refer it to as either gender neutral or simply inbox. Um, we're, we're not setting out to uh, to try and pick fights with people, but I think she may, might be trying to pick a fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she always is. Uh, anyway, so the question was, <laughs> let me just grab them here, is what is your opinion of rewilding in the UK? And what in reintroduced species are you most excited for? Or so it fits in quite nicely with this week's theme. It's almost like she'd read your article that you were about to read it's out. It's almost this week. as if she did, yeah. <laughs> well, well, take it away then, Drew. Oh, am I going first with this one? Am I? I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, my opinion of rewilding is I, I found a really good quote actually um, from someone. And whilst, you know, it's not my quote. I would just want to hijack it for for, for my answer, um, because yeah, because I enjoyed it and I, I feel I, I I sort of feel the same way. Um, so the quote is: "Wilding is when or rewilding is when nature is given the tools and space it needs to recover itself and has the potential to increase abundance of biodiversity to levels beyond what human management can achieve alone." Um, and I think that pretty much sums up my opinion of it. Um, it's a sometimes quite a controversial tool, but it is. Some uh, a tool that is definitely something that we can use to make great benefit to our uh, to our native species, um, whether it be in the UK or whether we're rewilding uh, across the world. Um, obviously, the conditions have to be correct in order to rewild something to somewhere. You have to make sure that it can flourish, that it isn't going to affect um, local people in a negative way. Uh, because then you're you're just fighting two battles there, um, which you are just essentially going to lose. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I, th I think it's a very effective tool, and it's one that uh, is is a, has uh, got a lot of um, uh, a lot of sort of notice now as well. I think uh, people are doing are, are looking into doing this more and more, um, and 
all the best to all those people who are, uh, are going into those projects. The the animal I think I would be most excited to reintroduce back into the UK is one I think that's probably already being reintroduced, uh, which is beavers, which we mentioned earlier as well. Um, mm. I think they're the one I'm more, more excited for than uh, than most others, because as we've mentioned before, they are sort of ecosystem engineers, uh, and they create uh, an environment by themselves, creating huge areas of wetlands that encourage all sorts of other animals to live and breed in those areas. Um, so with them, other things move in as well. Um, so, yeah, those are those are my guys. I think. Yeah, cool. Aaron, would you like to uh, give us your thought on uh, which species you'd want to see uh, coming back to the UK? Yeah, it's it's actually a more difficult question than I thought it would be. Actually, I'm all for reintroduction, obviously done appropriately. Uh, if I may, just toe the line of politics a little bit here. I would say that it's it's a crime, I think, that our nation allows every, every year thousands of uh, invasive, non-native species uh, to be released purely for the purposes of enjoying shooting them. Um, and not all of them get shot. So, and as I say, they're invasive, so they keep breeding. We see uh, these pheasants and, uh, and partridge uh, around a lot. And yet it is so difficult and so uh, bound in bureaucratic red tape to get anything reintroduced, anything that was native here reintroduced. Um, the fact that someone got fed up, someone in South Devon, I think it was, got fed up with how long it was taking to get beavers reintroduced, so took it upon himself to do it unofficially. Uh, the fact that um, they have so many problems. Uh, is it in, is it Airsdale? Airsdale, the land in Airsdale in, in Scotland, um, yes, where yeah. they've been trying to reintroduce um, <clears throat> predators and, and, and uh, ungulate species. Um, the fact that only now with the Wyson in Kent, we're talking, what, four individuals? But mm -hmm. thousands of pheasants can be reintroduced. And, and uh, yeah, I just think the impact on the ecosystem is is traumatic um but yeah well there it is yeah. um i <laughs> i can't really answer what what species i'm most excited for because um i would love to be super excited about the wisent because they're one of my favorite animals and i would love to see them in the uk i know they're not the native species i think we were talking about the step yes but they're, they're, they're so, pretty much the sort of equivalent. But they, and they, all, they do the same job. They'll do the same, yeah. Well, yeah, and, the and they're all, all the bison around today, Europe or America, they're all descended from the steppe bison, if I remember yeah. right. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so, and you yeah, are going like, say, quite a decent way, though, for that one. Yeah, <laughs> but they fill the same eco ecological yes. niche. My issue with it is that we've already got over-browsing and over-grazing on all our wildlands sure. uh, from... from our native who stock like red deer and the invasive stuff. Um, we are not very good at controlling uh, our land. We, the, the hack, the slash and burn that goes on isn't, I think I've been reading recently. It's not the best form of land management. Um, we're rewilding uh, plant wise. We're rewilding trees that aren't native. 
uh, in a lot of cases. Um, so yeah, I'd like to be in. I'd like to say I'm most excited about the Wisent, but the ungulates are already causing the problem. So then, obviously, what can I be excited about? And I think it would be wolves. But then there's so many problems with wolves because people just don't like them and don't want them here. Uh, in Britain, we have a very double standard when it comes to reintroducing predators. Everyone mm. else has to live with tigers and lions, but we can't live with a badger and a fox. So there's yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So I think I'm actually going to be a little bit dull. Um, and I'm going to side with Drew and say the thing that excites me most, uh, rewilding-wise, in Britain right now is beavers, because yeah. they're the ones who can make an ecological difference right now. They're different. And just beavers, just on their, they're in themselves without talking about reintroduction, they are fantastic animals. I love them. They're so interesting. Um, and I, I can't wait. When this lockdown's over, first thing I'd like to do uh, is go down and see them. Mm. Yeah. Can I, sorry, can I just that was a bit of... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Uh, sorry, yeah, if I just, just interject very quickly, because uh, you were talking about pheasants and release of game birds. Uh, in the previous podcast, mm. I chucked out a fact, and I did word it incorrectly, and I just wanted to quickly um, correct myself on that. Um, so I think I said in the last one that half of the wild bird population that we have in the UK is, uh, oh, yeah. is released game birds. Uh, that's not actually true. It's half of the wild bird biomass in the UK. So it's not half the population. It's half the, well, basically the total biomass of all those weight. birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the total weight of birds. So it's still quite significant. Uh, just, it's just one bird and he's really heavy yeah exactly yeah yeah i just really? i just thought i'd uh, throw really. that out because, you know this is uh, this is scientific and we want to be correct and i wasn't uh i didn't yeah i didn't interpret that quite correctly fair enough what about you gareth well i mean i do agree very much that we we need to try and rewild as much as possible but unfortunately <laughs> we can't do that until we sort of look at our farming practices yeah I mean, you look at upland areas, they don't look anything like they used to look before people started grazing sheep and cows mm. and all sorts of things on them. <clears throat> and all those those forests that should be there just aren't there. So places like Dartmoor and Exmoor, they just don't have those forests or anything on them uh, anywhere near as much as they should. If you go looking on them, those forests are there, but they're in the areas where those animals just can't be bothered to get to or where people couldn't be bothered to go and put a fence. So in small little valleys yeah, and yeah. sharp cliffed areas where just there's, there's nothing to get to. But the animals that I'd like to, or the animal that I'd most like to see, I've got two answers for this, a serious one and a stupid one. Both of which are animals that have lived in the UK. Mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> no. However, saying that... Baryonyx. One, one of them was probably more close to seeing a, a mammoth ro uh, roaming around than uh, than anything else. Oh, my my silly animal uh, would be um, walruses. Oh, yeah. uh, believe it or not, we did used to have walruses in the UK, oh, but you're looking quite a bit uh, ago at the last ice age when the uh, the climate was considerably different. And believe it or not, there was there was somebody who actually wanted to try and introduce walruses into the uh, the D estuary. Off the coast of Wales Fantastic uh, and, idea. and West England, <laughs> um, which would just be an insane proposition because, well, the habitat's not there for them. It's quite a busy shipping area. Um, and I can't imagine your average uh, dog walker walking along the uh, the edge of the River Dee and that would uh, would want to come across an animal that has the ability to, uh, to kill a polar bear. Mm. Um, I think that could cause some issues. But 
they are such a fantastic animal and would I would love to see one uh, just swimming past me one day. Um, but the more sensible animal, and one that I think is definitely something that could happen, uh, based on also reading up on the rewilding stuff that you uh, you showed us earlier, mm-hmm. Drew, um, is in fact European tree frogs. Yeah. An animal seems to have disappeared mm-hmm. um, because we've drained a lot of the wetland areas where they were thought to have bred. Um, they seem to have just disappeared entirely, and we've not really noticed when they disappeared. Mm-hmm. So we don't even have an exact date as to when they uh, they went extinct in the UK. That's sad. But one that we could certainly see reintroduced and probably one that could be done fairly <clears throat> easily. Yes. Because yeah. those wetland areas now are a lot better protected. A lot of them aren't being drained anymore. And in fact, new areas are being created. So it's one that might actually happen fairly recently or fairly soon if we're, if we're I lucky. I think actually it has already. It's already on a very started, small scale and not sort of like um, uh, with any sort of drive to do it. I think it's just been, um, uh, yeah, just a, a few, a few have been pets. sort of, I don't think it's necessarily escape pets. I think people have intended to rewild them, um, but it's, it's not oh, been okay. like a, a, well. a nationwide sort of, yeah, let's do this. Um, I guess sort of a bit like the beavers down in, um, uh, uh, down in on the river. sneaking around with a box I of think frogs. It, uh, I might be wrong, but I think it might be Dorset where there are, there are some basically some guy has got a few on his land uh, and he would like, he would like oh. to increase uh, that number um, but yeah he was he was basically saying on it um I, you know i don't know what people would throw their arms up about it's just a frog it's just a little frog um, <laughs> they were apparently really noisy people really don't like them. yeah they're apparently really noisy which yeah i, I can, yes, I can guess are. yeah i can guess that much um and that might be why they were probably uh, ended up being extinct uh, from this island because uh, Neolithic settlers could find them pretty easily. They just kept ah. shouting. <laughs> I'm over <laughs> here. I'm on this tree. <laughs> well, that's probably a downside to them being quite so noisy. Oh, but well. no, they, be, they would be cool. <laughs> they would be very cool to have back. Yeah. Have Aaron? you guys seen um, smooth snakes? Because they were reintroduced into parts of the UK. Yeah, there are some areas in the, in the UK. down in Dorset yeah. as well. We can't say exactly where they are, just in case anyone's wondering. Um, <laughs> but a select few people do know where. Yeah, but... they don't. They don't tend to make as much noise as a tree frog. No, no. I just wondered if you guys had seen them. No. I've only ever seen one once for a very brief second, uh, but uh, I feel very lucky to have seen it because it's mm. essentially a British version of a panda. Although I'd say a panda would uh, would not be as rare as uh, as a smooth snake is. Yeah. Mm. So let's go on to, from our first letter, to our second letter, Aaron. And this has actually come from someone who isn't Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this comes to, to us from uh, a good friend uh, called Kerry. And she asks, so she's been watching with her, with her little boy. She's been watching a thing on Netflix called, uh, by the way, there are other streaming services available. Um, okay. All right, we're not the BBC. Right, yeah. This is not sponsored. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If Netflix want to pick I'm us just up, covering, that's fine. I'm just covering our bases. This program's yeah. called Dinosaur Train. Now, in the intro, she says that they find a T-Rex in a pteranodon's nest, and it got her thinking: Was it a hint at real facts, and that perhaps T-Rexes were a bit like cuckoos and laid their eggs in in other dinosaurs' nests and and then jogged on? Um, for whatever reason, like maternal lack of uh, parental instinct, um, 
but she can't find anything on Google, so she wants to know what our thoughts are. Mm. Fair enough. And what are your thoughts, Aaron? Well, yeah, you can start. Well, Well, um, I actually found some pretty interesting stuff. It is quite difficult to to find um, a lot of like kind of specific info on certain dinosaurs, Um, and this is one of them actually. Uh, Funnily enough, because Tyrannosaurus rex is one of the one of the popular ones. Um, but I'd say the parental instinct of Tyrannosaurus rex is academic. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there, there very academic. Got in. So, well done. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So I found that kind of like uh, crocodilians that we see today, uh, Tyrannosaurids had sensitive areas of their face uh, with perforated nerve openings along their snouts, making them quite sensitive. In fact... Uh, what I was reading earlier, if I remember right, uh, it said something about them being more sensitive to touch than human fingertips, which is quite impressive. Um, it theorizes this kind of, I think this kind of leans on the the hypothesis that the area around the mouth and snout wouldn't have been feathered on, t- on the Tyrannosaurus. Um, but mm. Gareth, you can jump in on that if if you want, because I know both me and you well, think that it's quite likely that Tyrannosaurus had feathers. Well, from the latest, that well, the most up to date evidence, they've never found skin no. impressions of a Tyrannosaurus, but other members of the family um, have feathers. However, the latest sort of thought on uh, on the situation is that a T Rex wouldn't have had feathers now this changes from day to day depending on which paleontologist you speak to as well but yeah it wouldn't have had no. feathers on its head uh, and probably not even onto its neck but the babies would have also almost certainly been covered in essentially a, a fluff like baby birds do to keep them warm um, when they're adults they probably didn't anywhere need it uh, anywhere near as much um, and certainly if you had feathers or anything on your face if you've ever seen a vulture um, you'll see that they don't have very many feathers no. on their head. They have quite bare skin, and it means that if they get blood or guts on them, which a T-Rex is going to get quite a lot of blood or guts on it, is uh, it's going to be a lot easier to wash off skin than it is to wash yeah. off feathers. So, yeah. it, so this, so this, um, they basically found these um, uh, these perforated. Um, how do how was it put? It was perforated nerve openings. Uh, it, they mm-hmm. basically found these. They found these in a Tyrannosaurid. It wasn't in T. Rex that they first noticed. It was in, I think, it was a relative of Despletosaurus, which is a Tyrannosaurid uh, that actually went extinct yep. before the T. Rex dispersed. Um, now, they, I'm looking at a not right now, but I've got on my screen. I've got a abstract from a paper about the Despletosaurus um, and uh, another page that has about the T-Rexes. Now, they, they theorise that these nerve openings made, like I said, they make the snouts very sensitive and that this sensitivity may have been used uh, for courtship rituals in which they may have rubbed snouts, which is quite cute for such a big killing machine. Now, the <laughs> if you think and think about the fact that not many young or juvenile T-Rex are present in the fossil record. 
There's certainly no, no hatchlings, and there's no. Now, there, there could be a good reason for that. There could be many good reasons for it, but one of the theories put forward is that most uh, young T Rexes lived long enough to reach adulthood, uh, which would have meant that they would have needed parental um, yeah. protection to do that. And so, the ob- if you take what I said about the courtship and what I'm saying about the juveniles in the fossil record, um, and this assumption, to be fair, that uh, that we guess that they just all well, most of them made it to adulthood. It's quite kind of natural to think that um, they used this touch sensitive area of their face to communicate and to um, and to uh, basically to to uh, communicate with their um, with their youngsters. So I would say, from what I've read, I would say that they uh, they were good parents and they did hang around. Yeah, is, mm. would that also possibly imply? Again, it's it's an assumption as well that maybe they didn't have, they didn't lay very many eggs uh, in a in a clutch. Potentially, yeah. Um, if, if from looking from looking at other uh, dinosaurs, to adulthood, then uh, there's going to be lots of lots of T. Rexes running around. From looking at other uh, other theropod dinosaur nests, they they've been able to, uh, well, the the sort of average clutch size appears to be somewhere around uh, 10 to okay. 15 for some of the smaller and... theropods but there is certainly the thought that they would they would only well that they could only, you know that they might only um... lay a few sorry the eggs on. themselves they're thought to be the largest egg of any dinosaur right. so far mm-hmm. um, they've never found one like I say but the eggs themselves would as it's best described as a sort of a um, size guide would be a large French <laughs> loaf Essentially, the size of a, a large rugby okay, right. ball. I t- I tend to lean <laughs> towards what Drew was suggesting there that there aren't there weren't many in a clutch for the T Rexes, and I do so on by drawing comparisons to modern uh, pr- modern um, predators, apex predators like the T Rex. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think of big cats, a litter size on average is four. Four kittens, cubs. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. wolves don't tend to have huge litters either. Um, the apex predators of the sea. Uh, what's that like? One calf for I an orca. So. All yeah. the all the mm. main apex predators who are at the top of the food chain. They don't have many, and that would be that would that would be kind of intrinsic in keeping the balance of the ecosystem. Too many predators, not enough prey. Everyone dies. Um, but well, Gareth, this th- if if this is all tr- if if this if what's being pulled from from evidence by these researchers is true, that would make T. Rexes positively figmatastic. It would, it would. I I think it would be very very figmatastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the 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 best thing about paleontology is you can go one week where we know absolutely nothing. And then next week, we might have completely different answers. So uh, we'll hopefully be coming back to this one yeah, at another point. Mm. Mm. So our third and final question comes all the way from, well, from yeah. Jess again. <laughs> um, but this this is a, a totally question. different question to the last two. Which This is probably the it's most strong, serious strong question, question yeah. that we've had. It's it's a very strong question, and and I would expect you know nothing nothing less. 
Um, so her, her final question was, who would win? One million aquatic bullet ants or one mm. megalodon? Now, I have to assume that essentially she's either been breeding some aquatic bullet ants um, uh, with, with, uh, at your place, Drew. Or, uh, put it past her. <laughs> well, you'd, pro- you'd probably know. So I'm assuming we're going on the theory that these are ants that have not only time-travelled um, or the megalodon has time-travelled, but they're also able to live underwater. So my thought in this process uh, is um, I, th- I think, based on the fact that bullet ants get their name because a sting from a bullet ant is meant to feel like you've been shot by a bu- uh, with, with a bullet, I would actually say that the megalodon would win. It would be exceedingly annoyed. And an entire one million bullet ants would probably uh, really, really annoy it. But as a shark, it has got a body covered in microscopic Um, armor, essentially. Sharks feel rough to the touch because they're covered in tiny, tiny little little tough scales that will make sure that a lot of things can't get through sandpaper. So I actually... Yeah. And if you look at it under a microscope, it actually looks like tiny little teeth. Uh, I would think the Megalodon would actually come out okay. Unless it suffered an anaphylactic shock. So it's either going to be fine, or it's that one unlucky shark, which is highly allergic to being stung by bullet ants. A creature it would never (laughs) encounter in its life. whatsoever but well i guess then if if you are a sorry no no you go first just making a quick point i guess if you are if you're out there and you're breeding megalodon or you know megalodon (laughs) or aquatic uh, you presumably will need to check uh, test your shark uh, to make sure it's not going to be allergic to uh, uh, these sort of ants or or suffer any and and yeah sorry make it the strongest shark you can possible because uh that, that one weakness fair enough if you're breeding time traveling yeah, sharks it may yes. make it weak to uh to the to these bullet ants my my initial thought actually i didn't really think about stupidly i didn't really think about the armor of sharks because yeah of course they do um is was that how would a shark manage to repel all of these ants um well I don't yeah exactly but if it has got if it can't be touched through that armor then uh yeah maybe that's that's all it needs sorry on you go i i'm coming at this Fair from enough. a slightly different angle to you guys i think i'm um i'm more in line of thinking that you can't realistically you can't breed uh and in you can't <laughs> bring breed logic an into in- this Aaron. this is not I'm a situation for logic because i you can't you can't breed uh, ants to, to live underwater but what you can do is you can train anything that has a mouth uh, and eats so I think that they've been trained to wear little scuba gear and go for a swim uh, <laughs> now this presents a huge problem because not only do they have to bite through the armour of the natural armour of a, of a megalodon uh, but they've also got to take off their scuba gear in order to free their mouths to bite the uh, megalodon and whilst they're doing this, we're forgetting that megalodons have a huge mouth, and they could probably swallow a million bullet ants in one gulp. I say the megalodon wins. That's quite true. 
Well, that, that appears to be three votes for the Megalodon and um, no votes no. for the ants, unfortunately. Uh, so in this, this highly <laughs> likely scenario and very, very educational scenario, it would appear that uh, you want to use a Megalodon to uh, to defeat one million yeah. aquatic So again, for those ants. people out there, just make sure your Megalodon is fit for purpose. You know, <laughs> don't, don't go cheap on your Megalodons if you want them. You don't know no, what they're Would they have are they more or less likely to have an anaphylactic shock from a venom that they've never been exposed to? I I would I would imagine less, Ooh. but I'm not sure. Um it's one of those ones. If if you, dear listener, would like to uh, to give us your thoughts on who would win out of a an aquatic bullet ant or a megalodon. Please email us, and we'll tally up the results. And uh, well, we'll 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 put together a uh, a list of all the attributes of uh, of the two combatants, and we might revisit this one it's in the, the question future. Of the week. Um, <laughs> I, I think it'd be the question of the year. It could go on th- throughout the ages. Scholars will be debating this one well, in a thousand so. years' time. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's mailbag and also brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So a big thank you, you two, for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back with us next week as well. Not that you have anywhere else to go at the moment. So we'll definitely have you two back as well. Okay, then. Good. <laughs> that's that's the only choice you get in the matter. If you enjoyed what you heard uh, on this week's podcast and the other podcasts, um, you can find us on Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, and hopefully with more to come uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Google uh, Google Casts as well should be coming online soon. If you want to get in contact with us, uh, we are on Gmail at thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. Um, and if you'd like to subscribe, review, and uh, give us a, a like on any of the uh, the podcast things, that helps us out immensely. Uh, and if you also want to find us on our new Facebook page, where we'll be putting up all the articles that we've uh, referenced uh, today in uh, in well, very quick succession, uh, so you can see that, and also get in contact with us as well. So a big thank you to you two for joining us uh, again and a big thank you to all of you uh, for listening and we'll hopefully see you next week in the natural history cupboard goodbye farewell <laughs>